Amen. There is no math. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, I, I do encourage you, if you have the margins this uh, semester, to get into a discipleship community. It's such an important part of our spiritual journey. As we think about growing in Christ, I believe that I can't grow without you, and you can't grow without me. That's why community matters. The Bible talks about it all the time in terms of using our spiritual gifts and all of those one another passages. And I like to say this, you can't one another by yourself. You need people. So consider it. Uh, there'll be more information about how you can join. Let's move along a little bit in our our vision frame. For the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through this and asking, you know, what do we believe God's calling us to do? And we started at that distant horizon, which was this vision statement. We are called to advance God's kingdom on Cape Cod by inspiring, training, and mobilizing transformative leaders. Remember, the mid-ground is a one-year theme. And for us, our one-year theme is transformative leadership. Last week, we unpacked four key milestones that we believe if we could accomplish these things in four years, we would be heading towards that vision of inspiring training and mobilizing transformative leaders. And those four things included a facility update, potentially, uh, an impactful community engagement strategy, a growing population of young families in the church, and then fourthly, partnering with Converge Northeast in church planting. But here's a question. When you want to achieve something big, how do you get there? For example, if you wanted to ascend a mountain and get to the top, to the peak, how do you get to the top of the mountain? Well, I suggest that it doesn't happening by hoping that you will get to the top of the mountain. We don't just magically appear at the top of the mountain. In fact, to climb that mountain, it involves a series of more manageable steps along the way. And so the foreground on this vision chart represents what's important now. What can we do right now to get us to those three-year goals? And we have put together three teams that we believe will help us to move forward or to advance towards those goals. Now, when you're putting together teams, of course, you need some help coordinate those teams to keep those teams aligned because I don't know about you, but when I set three groups off to start doing their own thing, those groups can kind of do this, right? They can go any which way. But if you have someone coordinating them, those teams can get an alignment, and that can create a lot of forward momentum. So we have a StratOps champion, and I want to introduce him to you. His name's Armand Palladino. Many of you know Armand well. He's helping us keep these teams together. Now, these three teams are a community engagement team. We also have a facility team that's looking at the facilities and then a leadership development strategy team. And then also the elders have been working on for some time just praying and seeking and asking God about a third pastoral position for the church. And there will be more on that at the annual meeting. Just a little update from our chairman, Paul Gage. Let me tell you a little bit about these teams. The first team let's look at is the facility team. 
And you can also call this team the Dream Team. That's right. And not because uh, all the people on it are fantastic and marvelous, even though they are, but because we're trying to put together visionaries who can think about the possibilities of our building. What could this building look like to help foster relationships that move into discipleship that could be more inviting for the community in terms of utilizing this vision. This, this team is headed up by Craig Campbell, and you'll see the names of the other team members, Christy Curtis, Christy Laux, Scott Mitchell, Amanda Kleppel, Yar- Lars Jensen, and Doug Kyle. The community engagement assessment team is being headed up by Steve Barney. And he's put together a wonderful team that has a wide variety of perspectives that they bring to the table to help us think about how can we engage the community. Uh, Included in this team is Rick Robinson, Andrea Marcelli, Fadner Pierre, Bobby Moritz, Kim Range, and also Ava Range, which, uh, you know, sometimes when you have the senior pastor create the slides, he doesn't remember all the details. So I'm so sorry about that, Ava. You matter. We're really glad that you're on the team. And and the purpose of this team, of course, is they're going to be first looking at us as a congregation. And we're we're interested. We want to know what are you guys doing in the community? So they're going to be taking a look at that. And then if we're all out in the community and serving in some way, how can we keep one another informed of the opportunities? So learning how to internally communicate about the things that are happening. And finally, this team will also be assessing opportunities in the community, maybe one or two opportunities where we could be impactful with the community. Finally, the leadership development strategy team is led by Nick Kleppel, and with Nick is Lori Jensen and Pastor James, and they're looking at the systems that we have in place for leadership development in the church. Because if we want to inspire, train, and mobilize transformative leaders, well, we must develop some kind of system to do that. And they'll be taking a deep dive, a deep look at that, and recommending certain things that we as a church can do to get there. Here's what I want you to take away from all of this. We need to uh, move in this direction together with these teams. You know, these teams are not little private groups that are off meeting and, and, and conspiring on their own plans and desires, but they're really, I'm hoping, representative of us, of our church. So the team members are approachable. Uh, God will probably put perspective on some of your hearts He might have some questions that you would have as you're thinking in these categories, whether it would do with the facility or the community or leadership. So go to the teams, talk with them. Because the more that we have healthy dialogue around the church on these goals, the more I believe we will unite together and advance in them. Let's move forward now and take a look at the scriptures. And we are this morning looking at another aspect of leadership, and I'm calling it the measure of a leader. You know, I've come to realize that you and I don't intend to be truthful to ourselves if we're unwilling to measure. Do you get that? 
I'm not intending to be truthful to myself if I'm unwilling to measure. I, I think, for example, of my younger years, I used to tell myself that I was really, really good at saving money. But the thing is, is I was not measuring that at all. And so a little would go here, a little would go there. And then I would go and look at my bank account and wonder, why has my bank account gone on an extreme weight loss diet? And don't get me started on weight loss. And you don't count the calories. You just tell yourself, oh, it's all right. I'm just going to eat a couple of more salads and the the pounds are just going to shed away. You step on the scale and the scale tells you the truth. It does. Up until I'm willing to measure, I'm really just flattering myself. I'm just deceiving myself. Well, as aspiring transformative leaders, my question is, well, how do you measure success there? How do you measure greatness there? Well, that's a question that Jim Collins asked. I talked about his book a little last week. You remember the book, Good to Great? He and a team of researchers spent five years looking at organizations that had moved from good organizations to great organizations, and they identified two qualities in the leaders that were leading those organizations. Now, the first one's not going to surprise you. You see, those leaders were driven. They were driven individuals. They were willing to endure anything to make sure that the company succeeded. But the second quality, well, it really came unexpected to them. What they found about the great leaders as opposed to just good leaders was that the great leaders were self-effacing and modest. They consistently pointed to the contributions of others, and in fact, they did not like drawing attention to themselves. Jim Collins said this, the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger than heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. You know what the people around them said of them? They used words like this, quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understating. They, they didn't buy into their own clippings. Isn't it interesting that once again we're seeing that a so-called modern secular principle really isn't modern or secular at all? In fact, in 2007 in Forbes, they said this, many CEOs try to improve their leadership through precepts that ultimately have a biblical bias. A lot of the modern progressive thoughts, principles today, are far more ancient than we realize. Now, I want to take a look at one of those ancient stories in the Gospel of Mark. And as we go back into Mark, we're going to come to chapters 9 and 10 in Mark. And setting the context for this, let's go back to that thought. We're not intending to be truthful to ourselves unless we're willing to measure. Now, 
In our 21 days of prayer guide, they, they made a great point. They said this, that we can be tempted to deceive ourselves and believe that we're spiritual giants. And that's, that's not common just to today. That's been uh, common to humanity. There's a tendency in human beings to inflate our accomplishments and minimize our faults. And Jesus' disciples struggled with this. Pick up at Mark 9.33 and you'll see it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. That is definitely one of those conversations when Jesus says, what were you talking about that you don't want to talk about, right? Because it's juvenile, it's petty, but it's also right in line with the normal definition of greatness. And this is it. You're only as great as you are greater than the person next to you. Did you get that? You're only as great as you are greater than the person next to you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, was reflecting on pride, and he said that pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there, no, there would be nothing to be proud about. So Jesus knows that he has some work to do here with his disciples. He gets right to the heart of the matter in verse 35. He sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see what he does there? He's redefining greatness. He's changing the definition. Now, this is a new concept, right, for these disciples. And if you have a new concept, if you're a learner, you know that it takes some time for a new concept to sin, right? So we get to Mark chapter 10, and we see that the disciples are still struggling around this idea of greatness. Now, James and John pull Jesus aside, and they have this private conversation because, you know, these guys think they're hot stuff, and they know that Jesus privately believes the same about them. So with no hint of or evidence of a lack of confidence, they ask Jesus this question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Now, is there anything subtle about that request? And is that request anywhere in line with our definition of sacrificially leveraging my God-given influence and gifts? No. No hint of their desire to suffer with Jesus. There's not even a hint that they want to support Jesus in his suffering. And remember, Jesus has been talking about the fact that he's heading to the cross quite a bit. In fact, as you look at their desires there, I would say there's probably one on their mind. Fame. Prestige. 
They are looking at the normal definition. We want position. We want power, Jesus. We want to stand out. We want to be somebody. We don't want to be nobodies. Uh, We've got to take a little detour here for a minute. Because I find that as I read stories about Bible characters that that there's a tendency in me to look at Peter and James and John or even some of the Old Testament figures like Moses and David and say, "Ah, I would never do anything like these guys. I mean, couldn't they get their act together a little more? But here's the thing. Imagine there's a camera following you around and you're in your own biblical reality TV show. And these cameras are catching you sometimes in your worst moments. How do you think you're going to measure up? Probably not too well. You see, there's something universal about what James and John are doing and what the 12 are doing. Why? Why do I want to be richer? Why is it not good enough just to be good looking, but I have to be better looking? Well, Timothy Keller explains that this all has to do with the human ego. It has to do with my sense of self-identity, the awareness of who I am. And he appoints our attention to 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And it's here that Paul's dealing with a church that is struggling with this best of the best syndrome. This church is aligning in factions of people who follow great leaders, right? So this one faction over here says, you know, Paul discipled us, so we're the best in the church, the most spiritual, and we should be making all the decisions. And you had the Apollos group over here and said, you know, Apollos really speaks to the heart. He's the best leader that we've ever seen, and we all follow him, so we're better than you. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that creating these factions has led these leaders to be puffed up. Uh, the Greek word is phuseo. It's a really graphic term, actually. It's just imagining a body part that's overinflated, swollen, distended beyond its proper size. I may have told you this story before, but when I was in college, I was working at a U-Haul. I was moving a trailer and the tongue of the trailer fell down and it hit my pinky toe. I mean, 200 pounds on a pinky toe is not a good combo. When I got to the doctor, again, I'm sorry for the graphic nature of this, but the toe looked like a pancake. It was gross. And then two or three days later, the toe turned from a pancake into this swollen balloon. I couldn't even put a shoe on. Well, that's what Paul wants you to think about. He wants you to imagine that as you think about the normal state of the human ego. It's puffed up, it's overinflamed, it's gross. Why does the human ego do this? Well, it's because we're compensating. Because without God, the human ego is actually empty, it's painful, it's busy, and it's fragile. It's empty because... If we don't have God in our lives, then we're trying to fill a void that is really, really big with something that's really, really small, my sense of self-importance, my sense of self-worth. And when you put something really small into something really big, what does it do? It just kind of rattles around. I mean, think about a quarter inside of a coffee can. It just makes a lot of noise, but it does not fill the space. 
It's also painful. You know that pain is an indicator to you that something's not right. Do you walk around all day thinking about your pinky toe? I don't. I never think about my pinky toe. It's just it's part of my body, but that's about it. However, when I dropped the trailer on my pinky toe, I became fixated upon it. It was like the only part of my body that mattered at that moment. Pain was telling me that something wasn't right. Well, what if we're constantly thinking about ourselves? What is that telling us about the state of the human ego? It's not healthy. It's not in a good place. A Keller says this, it's very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. There is something wrong with my identity. It's always drawing attention to itself. And then the ego gets really busy because if I'm feeling empty and I'm in pain, what do I do? Well, I try to overcompensate with that by comparing myself to others all the time. So now I get onto Facebook, right? And I'm either feeling really good about myself as I look at someone else's post because I'm like, I'm not like them, or I feel really bad about myself when I get on someone's post because I'm not like them. Which leads to the last point, it's fragile. Because just as easily as I can get overinflated, I can go on Facebook and get deflated. How do I deal with that hurt? How do we manage that? We have to go back to Jesus in Mark 9 and 10 and watch him flip the script on what greatness is and, and who we are. He starts talking to the disciples about something that they've been living with their entire life, the Roman occupation. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is like, look, this is the standard definition at work. How's it gone for you? Do you like it? Not really. Now, As he moves into his next point, I want you to notice that Jesus does not categorically reject the ambition or desire for greatness. He just redirects that ambition. Look at verses 43 and 44 now. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be made or be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So let's compare the normal definition versus Jesus's definition. One pastor captures the normal definition well. It's individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency pursuing selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. And here's Jesus's definition, serving others for the glory of God. Serving others for the glory of God. 
So the normal definition has at the center of it self-worship. Jesus' definition has at the center of it worship, transformation, mission. We become greater than we ever could on our own. He has at the heart of it that definition of transformative leadership, sacrificially leveraging my God-given gifts and influence to advance his kingdom, not my kingdom. Do you see it there? And what I love in these passages is Jesus doesn't just give us a definition of what greatness is. He gives us a model, his own model. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you're ever thinking to yourself, well, what what does greatness look like? You should go to the cross. You should think of Jesus dying in your place, the, the, the God of the universe condescending and becoming a human and laying down his life so that you could be saved. That's what greatness looks like. That's our picture of it. Well, if we were to pin that down, Jesus' definition of greatness into one character quality, what would it be? One time in his life, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo in the 4th century, was approached by a young Christian, and the Christian said to Augustine, he said, Augustine, what's the most important character quality of a Christian? Without hesitation, Augustine said, humility. Then the guy came back at Augustine, and he said, okay, that's, that's good. Well, what's the second most important character quality of a Christian? And Augustine, again, he just said without hesitation, humility. A third time, the guy says, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Augustine, then what's the third most important quality of a Christian? And without hesitation, again, he says, humility. Are you guys getting the memo? It's all about humility. The defining measure for success is not, capital N-O-T, how many people fill the rows, how much money we give as a church, or how much money I make, or how many people like my posts on Facebook, or the circles that I run in, or the clubs that I'm participating in. It has nothing to do with those things. The defining nature of greatness, according to the scriptures, is humility. Now let me ask you, how in the world do you measure something like humility? I mean, is there like a thermometer or something like that? You put it on your forehead and it says proud or humble to you? No. We have to go back to Jesus' definition. Serving others for the glory of God. It turns out that humility can only be measured through humble actions. You see it as people serve others. Let me give you a couple of observations that I've seen over the years of humble leaders. The first one is this, that humble leaders are not controlled by what others think about them. And here's the second part, or even by what they think of themselves. Uh, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4 again. He said, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself 
For I am not aware of anything against me, but I am not thereby acquitted. Now notice that he's saying two things here. The first thing that he's saying, we can all agree with. We're we're good with this part. You know, Paul's saying, don't let other people influence how you feel about yourself. And if we ever had a friend or a family member coming to us and they're saying, oh, I'm sad and I'm depressed and I'm anxious because this person thinks this way of me, what would be our counsel? What would be our advice? We'd say, you don't need to care what other people think of you. You do you. Don't worry about it. Now, the second thing that Paul's saying we might struggle with. Paul says in the passage, I don't even care what I think about me. Now, our normal counsel is to say to people, oh, you know, there's inner greatness in you. You're awesome. Just, just do yourself. Follow your heart. But Paul says that is a trap. I'm not even good at judging me. So then whose opinion matters? That's the big question. Well, listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. It is the Lord who judges you. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Humble leaders know that the only opinion that matters is God's opinion. When we start letting God be God, when it's only his opinion that matters in our life, it frees us up in our self-identity and our self-awareness. We stop constantly thinking about the slights or obsessing over our image or fixating on what others think of us. No, we think about our ego in the same way we think about our pinky toe. That is not that often. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you were able to get that kind of freedom? Turns out that there's a form of slavery, right, when I'm just constantly fixating on those things. But, but if I could just trust God with my identity, man, I could really become the kind of person that God wants me to be in this world. You know a strong indicator that you're moving in that direction? is another observation. Humble leaders are intensely interested in others. Again, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said, if you were to ever come across a truly humble person, you might not even realize that they were humble in the moment. And the reason for that is, is that they would not always be talking about how they are a nobody because he says a person who keeps saying that they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. Lewis says that you would know that the person was humble because in that conversation, they kept showing interest in you. That's what it's all about. We live in a culture today that cannot stop talking about itself. You get into conversations with people, you say two sentences, they say 30. They tell you all the stories about their life and how they're feeling and what they're thinking, but there's never this back and forth dialogue of, let me ask you something about you, and then maybe they do ask you a question, you say one sentence, and you can tell they're just thinking about the next thing they want to say about them. Well, Paul says, Philippians 2, that Christians should be different. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's another observation. Humble leaders do not overestimate their strengths. They just humbly serve, okay? I've noticed in, in my perspective of church leadership from the time I was young that one of the reasons that the church doesn't seem to be doing well in America is there's been a lack of empowering others in the church, where it becomes the center of, uh, everything becomes centered around a personality of a preacher or, or a couple of leaders within the church. And if you don't decentralize that a little bit by empowering, then the church doesn't follow the master's plan. The church stagnates whenever that leader goes away. Another thing that I've noticed when it comes to this idea of overestimating strengths is People in our culture do not rest. They don't rest. And why does, that mean, why does that tell me that that person is struggling with pride? Because they think that the world's going to stop spinning if they stop using their strengths. Rest requires humility. Rest says, God, I believe that you're going to continue the work even after I'm long gone. One more thing on this. I sat in a conversation with Gordon McDonald and a couple of leaders in New England, and he was sharing principles of his perspective of 80, life at 80, and what he's learned and what he's observed. And, and one of those principles he talked about was, with age comes obscurity. That when I was younger, I was the center of attention from his point of view. He was leading big churches. There were big crowds around him. Now he's 80 years old, and it doesn't seem like the invites come very much. But do you know what the humble leader does with obscurity? The humble leader says, I'm not placing my value in whether or not a lot of people here care about my personality or my influence. The only thing I long to hear is well done, good and faithful servant in the life that really counts. Here's what's great about humble leadership. Humble leaders know that greatness is not a limited resource. You see, the normal definition of greatness says only a couple can achieve this. Only a couple can become the greatest. But think about Jesus' definition. Jesus' definition says that everyone can be great because anyone can serve for the glory of God. You know what happens when I start looking at the world through that definition? I start seeing greatness everywhere. I see greatness in our kids, parents, in our kids as we're raising them up and we're teaching them to serve one another and serve the family. I was just thinking about my kids as I was writing this sermon. I was thinking... You know, I see greatness in my daughter, Lexi, because she leverages her gift of reading and and she reads to her brothers at night as they're going to bed. Or my son, Zach, when he wakes up in the morning and he makes waffles for the family. Or, Or my son, Bear, who just truly, truly loves people and he thinks about them all the time. And so one of the big things he wants to do is like make pictures for them and send them letters in the mail. It's not just my kids, it's your kids too. 
I, I see greatness in those of you who are providing real care for ailing family members. It's so sacrificial. It takes so much emotional energy, physical energy. You have to be there day in and day out. Do you think anyone's going to write the New York Times or any of those uh, newspapers and say, this person's great for doing that? No. But Jesus is looking and he thinks it's great. Or those who just give generously and they're not telling anyone about it. Or those who serve around the church or within the community and it's not to get a thank you, even though you deserve a thank you because what you do matters. See, greatness is everywhere. And let me ask you, church, what if we started valuing that more? What could this place look like? I'll tell you one thing. I think the other measures would follow with that. Because you know the truly attractive people that you can think about in your mind right now are probably humble people too? It's true. The people that I think about, that I want to be around, that I want them to influence me, are humble. So if we did that more, we would see God work through it more. Lastly, humble leaders expect great things from God because humility is not a lack of confidence. Humility is an overflowing confidence in God. That's what the Lord said through the prophet Zechariah to Zerubbabel. He said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. That's how things happen in this world. Anything truly great that happens, happens through the empowerment of God. In Ephesians 4.20, remember, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask, think, or imagine according to the power at work within us. Because greatness is only found in God because only God is great. And so the things that God declares are great are the things that are great. Let's bring this home now. We, we, we began with this idea, right? We said that a person does not intend to be truthful to themselves unless they're willing to measure. And if we wish to be transformative leaders, we must apply some measure or standard of greatness to our overall leadership. And here's the master's plan. Are you ready for this? Jesus is asking you this morning, how is your serve? How's your serve? Not your tennis serve, but your serving others serve. If you wish to be the transformative leader that God's calling you to be, and you're not measuring that, you're just deceiving yourself, you're just flattering yourself, how is your serve? Are you sacrificially, keyword there, sacrificially leveraging your God-given influence and gifts for his kingdom? Are you using your gifts? Are you showing up in a consistent fashion? Or are you backing out when it gets tough? Do you show up at all? How is your serve? How is your serve in your neighborhood? Do your neighbors know who you are? Have you ever met a need of one of your neighbors when you became aware of it? How is your serve when it comes to your generosity? Are you generous with the things that God has given you? Or do you mostly focus on meeting your own needs and the needs of your children and the needs of your grandchildren? How is your serve? When other people look at you, what do they think about you mostly? Do they think servant? 
or successful? How is your serve? The only measure that matters in the kingdom is humble service. It's the only thing. How do we get there? I think the great analogy of crawl, walk, run matters all through the Christian life. We have to start by crawling. And that's a lot of time prayer, right? Knee time. God, how do you want me to serve? And then we start walking. We simply say, I can help with that. We find something. We stick with it. And as we learn to run, as we're sticking with it, then we get to marvel. Because God will use you in ways that are far greater than you could have imagined when you first stepped into doing that act of service. How's your serve, church? Are you doing it? And if yes, are you doing it for God's glory? Let's pray. Lord, I uh, thank you for your holy word. I love Mark chapter 9 and 10 and those images of greatness that we see in the life of Jesus. I thank you first for Jesus' model, dying on the cross, laying down his life, serving us. And it's our desire to be like our master. We want to define greatness around his definition, serving others for the glory of God. I pray that as we grow as transformative leaders that we will do just that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.